You're listening to Radio Influence. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome to City Ringside, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy, as always, to have you here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Not going to talk very much in the open to this edition because we have 90 minutes of great stories, uh, some sad stuff, uh, some some gr- uh, fun stuff, but basically talking to a third-generation wrestler about uh, his life uh, in the wrestling business and what he's doing now and some of the the horrible things he's been a part of and some of the very cool things he's been a part of with great stories as well. So real quickly, just want to remind you, if you don't follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at David Penzer or at Penzer Ringside. Uh, if you like the podcast, be sure to spread the word and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to. And without further ado, let's get right to it. Great 90-minute interview, great stories with third-generation wrestler, my friend Chavo Guerrero Jr. Love me some third-generation wrestlers, and we have one as our special guest this week on City Ringside. Good friend of mine, known him for a, a long time, and his name is Chavo Guerrero Jr., although now just known as Chavo Guerrero. Uh, Chavo, welcome to City Ringside. How are you, sir? What's up, Pens? How you doing, brother? And, and, and just to let you know, I'm back to the junior. Ah. I'm back to the junior. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The WWE had dropped the junior from myself and Rey Mysterio, uh, just, you know, just to simplify things on TV. But uh, then when I left there, it was like, okay, uh, as respect to my dad, I went back to the junior, you know? Sure, absolutely. What a family yeah. uh, that you yeah. came from. And I got to know um, Chavo and, and Mondo a little bit before I got to know you and Hector. A little. Right. I, actually, I actually saw Hector last weekend in Auburndale. I don't know if you guys stay in touch at all, but... Uh, we, we are, we are. He actually just texted me and said, hey, I... Uh, I saw Nobs, <laughs> the Nasty Boys, and Nobs said that they had tried your your new beer, and he said it was really good. So he just said hi. We we can touch quite a bit, you know. Yeah, it was the same show we were doing an indie show. Um, yeah, so it was great oh, nice. to it was great to see him. And um, so your family's always been very kind to me, and always uh, whenever I was in uh, El Paso with WCW, was always uh, uh, took me out, showed me a good time, and uh, bought me some cocktails. So you know, you always got to appreciate that. But we'll talk about the beer. I know you got beer. I know you got comic books. You got all kinds of stuff. We'll talk about it in the middle in a minute. Um, sure. Let's start at the beginning, though. When and and I've, every third generation wrestler that I've I've interviewed and as we, you pointed out when we were talking a little bit before we press play, uh, record, press play, press record, uh, there aren't that many out there. But I'd love to ask you a couple of them a couple of questions. When did you know? At what point in your mind? At what age did you know you wanted to be in the family business, be a wrestler? Um, brother, th- there was never a time that I didn't know. To be honest, I can't remember when I decided to do that it was just the way we grew up you know it was a different time for sure but we grew up wrestling was the family business that's sure. that's just what it was you know we, we had a wrestling ring in the backyard you know we uh um, were at my grandfather's promotion you know and helped you know whether it be you know sweeping or or to help you know with the ring or you know selling programs whatever it was uh selling eight by tens for the other wrestlers that kind of stuff because you you always it was just the family business so there wasn't like I, I a point that I said that I decided yeah I want to be a wrestler 
it just was there, man, my entire life. Everything I've really done in my entire life, whether it be working out or playing or wrestling, you know, amateur wrestling or playing football, all that stuff was, was to be a pro wrestler, man. And I look back at it now and kind of think, God, that's pretty, how naive I was because God, I, I just thought, yeah, no problem. I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to make it a pro wrestler. It was, it's already written, but it was, I was so naive because just to think, how difficult, you know, how difficult is it to actually break into this business and make a living and be successful at it? It's sure. so difficult. And for, for like me and Eddie just to think, oh yeah, we're just gonna be wrestlers. You know, God, yeah, I look back at it now going, wow. I mean, it, it was, you know, thank God that the stars aligned, but whew, man, there's a lot of second, third generations out, uh, wrestlers out there that, you know, that, that didn't make it. So it's interesting to ask because we live in a totally different world as we did when as when we broke in. Uh, when we broke in, I wouldn't have a podcast. I wouldn't be asking you this question, but it's a, it's different times. So you used to go to the matches and, as you said, sell programs, sweep up, do whatever they needed you to do. At what point did they smarten you up, if at all? You know, they never did. They never <laughs> did. And for listeners here, uh, you know, smarten up basically knows the the, the ins and out of the wrestling business. Uh, you know, for us, man, they never, they never had to have that sit down talk with me just because, you know, we, we just, we knew what it, we knew what it was. You know, I, I remember being in the dressing room when the guys were putting together matches and that kind of stuff. It was just, that's just the way the business was. And I, and for, you know, anybody to say that, you know, it's not real or fake or whatever it is. As a kid, I'd see my dad, you know, hobbling out of bed and, and hurt and, and, you know, bad, you know, back. And he was young at the time for that. So it wasn't, it was always real to me, you know, it was always a real thing. Now it'd be like saying like, like, let's say a son of a stunt man saying, Oh, well, your dad's not real because he rehearses that car crash. Well, it's still a car crash. Sure. No, Hey, I in no way, I in no way made you know me, I have total respect for what you guys put your bodies through, especially as somebody who does it. So I in no way was trying to to say anything negative, but you know, you could use the word predetermined or, but, but, but the, you know, you guys uh, put yourself. And I said this, I think on my last podcast, uh, you guys uh, beat yourself up as bad as any sports entertainer does, whether it be football, NFL, you know, you have off season or anything. Hockey. Yeah, right, right. You know, that's one of those like, like so. Like, they, back to your question, they never really had to smarten me up. I, I knew what it was. I knew that it was, you know, that we were entertainment, but it was a, you know, a super very physical entertainment, and especially at that time. Nowadays, it's you know they'll train people, and you know you don't really have to be a tough guy to get into the business. Back at then, you know, in the seventies and eighties, man, it was the wild west. And I, and I know you know this, but just for the listeners, it was the Wild West. I mean, these guys, there was no MMA out there. The toughest guys in the world were the pro wrestlers because they they would beat you up so bad just to see if you could take it. And if you could, then they decide to train you. And then you'd live on the road and you'd be working with all these other huge wrestlers that were all just as tough, if not tougher than you. So, you know, hey, if you're going to, you know, win in a sense – you know, you had it. They made you earn it. They made you had to be a legit tough guy for them to actually let you win. And you just, it, it, they wouldn't let somebody like, well, he can't really beat me, or he's, you know, he really can't beat me in a real fight, or he's at least uh, uh, won't make a showing, so I, I can't lose to him. That was the mentality back then. They, they wouldn't do it. You know, now it's a different story because now it, 
It's inter- total, complete entertainment. And it's still physical. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, now we, we understand what it is. We're all in there selling tickets and, and, you know, whatever's best for the show to get the most people in there. You know, um, you know, I've said it before, you, you know, like um, some of the, you know, the, like the champs may not be the toughest guy there, but he's the one putting the, the, the asses in the seats, you want to call it, you know, so things have definitely changed, you know, so, but you know, back then, man, I, like I said, it was the wild west. It was the, the era of uh, cocaine and steroids. So <laughs> <laughs> no one knew, no one knew they were bad for you. <laughs> just, just to put a little bit more context in what you were saying. Uh, so the fans really understand, you, you know, you, you lived in El Paso and your dad had your grandfather, sorry, had a territory in El Paso. Um, it did other cities, but the main uh, draw was El Paso. And what, yeah. what you're saying is they wanted to make sure that, you know, no, no matter how pretty you are, no matter how many girls would buy a ticket, they wanted to make sure that if you were in El Paso after the matches and you went to a bar and a fan picked a fight with you, that you were going to be able to stretch that fan because if not, who wants to come see you anymore? Because word's going to get around. That, that, bro, that, that was a thing with like Bill Watts. Bill Watts is notorious his, his, in his like Mid-South wrestling and his Houston territory that you had to be tough. And he would tell the wrestlers, hey, go out at night and go to bars and have a good time. And if you get in a fight, you get in a fight. But if you lose, yeah. you're fired <laughs> because he can't have he can't have his pro wrestlers and he get losing to a guy in a bar. Even though that guy in a bar may be a you know crazy tough guy, you you can't. So these these wrestlers were you know they were fighting for their jobs. Every time they got in a fight, they're fighting for their jobs. You know the cops would show up, they would fight the cops. You know they'd go to jail, they could fight the guys in jail because it all got back to everybody how how tough and crazy these guys were. But you had to you know and, and but I, you know that when you if you've been in this business, you kind of realize that you kind of get a, you have a, a screw loose anyways, and you kind of just start enjoying it for some reason. I don't know. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I just always hid behind the wrestlers. If anybody started a fight, cause I couldn't beat anybody up. Um, let me ask you a question. Did you have like one person that, uh, took a more interest in training you or was it a true family effort? It was definitely a family effort for sure. I mean, everybody had a, a, a role in it. My uncle Mondo really took me under my, his wing at the start. Um, as a kid, of course, my father, but, um, my uncle Mondo for sure, definitely he would go, you know, make it out, go out of his way to have, you know, go to the ring with me and train with me, which I, you know, always will be grateful for. Uh, then, you know, Eddie, before I broke into WCW really took me under his wing and he'd do the same. And then when I made it into WCW, I'd have, you know, Hector that was there and really giving me the, besides him and Eddie, really showed me the ropes, you know, and showed me what to do and what not to do and that kind of stuff, you know. So as far as my family, I always had them um, um, as a hand and being a critic in my matches too, you know. I mean, I'd I'd get, you know, I'd have a good SmackDown match and all of a sudden I'd get a call from my dad, hey, uh, good match, but uh, your your punch at you know three minutes and thirty six seconds sucked. Go back and look at it. Okay, okay, <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. So I was always being critiqued, uh, which is good. I mean, it made me be the wrestler uh, that I became. But then also, you know, not just my family. I mean, my I learned on the job. You know, I learned. I was such a young guy coming into the business and so green, as we call it, as you know. Uh, but you know, my teachers were Eddie D Malenko, Chris Benoit. Uh, Fit Finley, Stephen Regal, uh, Arn Anderson. I mean, the um, Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning. The 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 best of the, some of the best wrestlers of all time 
were those guys were my teachers and my friends, but those guys were the ones that were were teaching me, you know, by um, um, I guess by hard knocks in a sense, you know, they were the, they were teaching me, but they were, you know, they beat me up too. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I remember that time, and uh, let, let's go there. You were, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me, you were literally thrown into the fire in WCW. Tell tell me the fans and tell remind me a little bit about that because I remember having conversations with you driving down the road, and you were like, you know, um, uh, I I. I, I not that you don't know what you're doing, but you know you're not at the you weren't at the level that some of these other guys were, and they you know because of your family name you expected yourself to be at that level. So it was a little bit of a trial by fire. No, for sure, for sure, and I, and I know that you have pointed that out to me. Thank you very much. <laughs> but <laughs> but at the same time, you know what, man, I, you can't. This is a business. This is an art form. You cannot learn this in 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 a year or two years or five years. It really takes. Uh, you know, back in the day, you you weren't even, you didn't even get to like the WWF back in the day until you were minimum ten years in because that's how long it took just to learn it, and then you would perfect it after that. So, in a sense, look at this. So, I I you know, I, it took me about five years. I was wrestling about three hundred times a year, roughly. So, five years. You're looking at about fifteen hundred matches of being on the road. You know, at least four to four or five days a week you know i remember, remember those wcw um uh, schedules were brutal we'd have 10 days on two days off 10 days on two days off yep. so uh yeah so you're looking at 1500 matches before i kind of felt that i knew what i was doing and then not until 10 years in so you're looking at 3000 matches before i had people like rick flair or stone cold steve austin come up and go hey great match really good job that's three thousand matches 10 years full time at wrestling at the highest level that's and i grew up in the business with a wrestling ring in my backyard that's how difficult this business is to actually be good at so for me to get a tryout because really i was eddie's nephew in wcw and they said okay we see some potential in this kid let's sign him and eric bischoff signing me and then really i just i learned by by trial and error being on the job and you know and it's you just kind of you're out there you know you get being a guerrero you get that the um you get the door open for you but you're expected to be as good as everybody else in the girl family right away and it's impossible you can't the same thing happened i remember when i first started my uncle eddie pulled me aside and goes hey don't worry the same thing happened to me the same thing happened to your dad they accept expected your dad to be as good as as his father gory Guerrero, my grandfather they expected Eddie to be as good as my dad and his other brothers. They expected me to be as good as Eddie. You can't. And Eddie said, "You're you're you. Be you. Don't worry about it. You the cream always rises to the top." And these are just little um, um, uh, tidbits of of knowledge that Eddie gave me. You know. Yeah, it's funny that you uh, that you mentioned that because it was a strange time in the business. Normally, uh, you know, prior to that time, but when the territories were there, normally you'd have started probably in another territory, probably not using your real last name right. in opening preliminary right. matches. You know, learning the road, learning, and then you'd go to a couple territories, and finally maybe they bring you back and uh, give you a little bit of a push, uh, teaming with your dad in El Paso, and you'd go to Los Angeles. You know, and it was they built you up and then now 
There's the Performance Center and NXT, so you still have a, that that buildup. But then it was really there wasn't any any way to really uh, uh, learn your craft. They just kind of threw people in, especially WCW did. I can remember guys like Van Hammer, Todd Champion, yeah. Firebreaker, Chip. Right. There were a ton of guys right. that 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 were thrown in that didn't make it. You're one of the few that actually did, and and probably because you were your family was so respected and you were so humble that people you know really came uh got behind you all those guys that you said and more you were you were sort of like an underdog and everybody wanted to you know be part of your growth in wcw uh a because you're such a nice guy and b because of your family history and your family's such nice people so it really it really helped you because if you were if your last name was smith uh you know it might have been uh you know six months and you were done oh for sure for sure which is cool is that you got the guys that that were there, you know, the people in charge, the uh, Kevin Sullivan's, the uh, Arn Anderson's, you know, of course, Eric Bischoff's that were able to recognize talent. Thank God. You know, not that I'm saying that I was a talent guy, but they saw something in me and let me really learn on the job, you know, instead of going, OK, come back in, you know, five years when you know what you're doing. You know, they actually let me learn on the job. And I remember um, being in WW, I think we're WWF then not WWE and when Eric Bischoff first came in and me and Ray Mysterio were had a little program going on and you know he and I always were able to kill it pretty well um, um, in the matches uh so afterwards I saw Eric in the dressing room and I said hey Eric um you know man I just want to thank you for you know taking a chance on me in WCW and and you know and you know kind of you know paying me to really learn on the job and he says he says well it was a it was a damn good gamble and it paid off. So it was yes, really cool of him to say that, you know. That's absolutely true, and uh, yeah, nice to yeah. hear. Um, yeah, I I thought that you really started to find your personality and your stride when they gave you the Pepe gimmick. I I know a lot of people probably, and maybe you do too, probably roll your eyes about a a a, a horse on a stick, a horse's face on a stick. But I I think that you you made you know some a lot of people, and I'm not kissing your ass because you're on the show. I think I probably told you at the time, but I. I I think I remember us talking about it. Uh, a lot of people would have not been able to make that work. I thought you really did a great job and made it work and made it entertaining. Did you feel like that's when you finally, you know, started to get it as far as your personality and and performing uh, as a character as opposed to just wrestling? Um, I started to, yeah, I started to get it then. I mean, if I go back and look at it now, I'd do it definitely different with that same gimmick. I mean, I probably could have made much more money. But, um, yeah, I definitely started getting getting it, you know, and I realized that's when I started realizing look, we grew up it was wrestling, 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 wrestling. That's when I started realizing it's not just the wrestling. The era that we were in, you needed more than just being able to do good moves. Right. You had to become a, like a character and and have a personality so people had to they had to care about you. They had to be invested in your character. They had to care about you. So whether whatever that is for the for the wrestler to make that happen, whether it be you know your wrestling moves or your you know your promos or your look or your body or your gimmick. They had whatever it is. They had to be able to buy you in a sense, and that's I think when they started you know in a sense buying me was because you know uh, I guess because of that gimmick and working with Eddie, which was you know awesome and um, um, being able to do that. And have you know play off each other? We we done our entire lives. Sure, um, that definitely helped too. You know, any thoughts on the uh, misfits in action? 
different people have different thoughts on the uh, the Vince Russo era. Yeah, man, you know for sure. So when that came, when and I and I, I remember talking to Johnny Ace on on a flight one time. We were in the, together, uh, you know, on a you know on a, on a flight somewhere, and he had just come in as you know a talent relations guy from from Japan, and he goes, "Hey, Chavo," with his with his raspy ass voice, and yeah. he's like, "Hey." Uh, you know, what, what do you think about that Misfits and Ash and, you know, gimmick? Uh, you know, are you happy with that? And I'm like, well, look, I go, if it was my choice, yeah, sure, you want to be the champ. Everybody wants to be the be the guy. I go, but before Vince Russo came in, I was sitting, I was sitting at home. I wasn't really doing anything. I had, you know, Eddie had, had, was just about ready to leave. You know, um, the, our our um, our run kind of went over. I, Pepe had already got killed. So I was kind of in between a little bit. So, Vince came in and thank God he saw, you know, something in me and didn't just like put me aside. And, and first remember I put me as, as the Amway salesman. I don't know if you remember that. Which oh was, God, I forgot know, another, about that. And another, you know, I mean, it's something you don't want to write home, but still it was me experience on the mic and being funny and being able to be in, you know, promos with Bret Hart and, and, you know, the outsiders and that kind of stuff and interviewing them in a sense. And then, and then doing my little funny stick and then put me in that misfits in action, which was just four guys that weren't really doing anything. He put us together and now I'm on TV. So you can, you know, you can say what you want, but in wrestling, the way wrestling works is not always are they going to write for you like the, you know, the most incredible storyline where you're beating Undertaker <laughs> at, at WrestleMania. You know, that, just, that, that doesn't happen. What happens is they give you lemons and you have to make lemonade out of it. Sure, absolutely. And you always had a good attitude with stuff like that. Um, when wh I don't remember, I honestly don't remember the answer to this question, but um, I'd be uh -huh. remiss if I didn't ask you. We all remember at, at, at one point, uh, Eddie and Dean, Benoit and uh, Perry Saturn left. Uh, I, I could remember the where I was standing in the arena when I tried to convince them not to walk out the back door. Um, I don't remember right. what arena it was, but I can remember what it looks like. I think it was in Ohio somewhere. I could be wrong. Did you have have an opportunity to leave and choose not to or were you not given that were you uh, not part of that uh, decision no i did you know i wasn't at the arena that day i was definitely not on that show so eddie called me and goes hey just to let you know uh me dean chris perry we're, we 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 quit and i'm like what yeah he goes we'll quit and we're going to uh you know hopefully going to wwe and I was like, oh, wow, okay. He's like, um, what do you want to do? Do you want to go with us? you want to stay? And I said, I don't know. I'm still, at this point, only two years in the business, you know? And I'm like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. What do you think? And he goes, I think you should stay here because for all of us leaving, that's going to open some spots right away. And I think it'd be good for you to stay here. Not that he didn't want me to go with him, sure. but he was looking at always, Eddie was always looking out for my best interest. You know, he always was not the most unselfish guy you would ever meet. And he was like, look, I think he was, if you want to come with us, you come with us. He goes, but I think it's a good spot to stay there because it's going to open up and you're going to, they're going to, they're going to use you. Uh, and thank God he did because after that I became, you know, my first cruiserweight champion run. Um, that kind of, you know, started, you know, we mean after that, I started doing some um, um, pretty good matches with, with Shane Helms. And, um, you know, we started tearing the house down. And that's kind of when I first uh, got pretty close to 
really having some really good matches, you know, and started coming to my own a little bit. You know, I still wasn't there yet, but um, if I look back at those matches, you know, man, the athleticism and we were, you know, we, we could go, you know, but that opportunity kind of presented itself because that those the radicals, as they were called, they, they left, you know, so. Yeah, you know, that was great advice. I, I never heard that story before, but in, in hindsight, that yeah. was great advice because exactly what he said was true. As soon as those guys left and they needed to fill the void, you got pushed into the cruiserweight title scene uh, with Kidman and Shane Helms and, and, and really stayed there until uh, as part of the, one of the, the main cruiserweights until uh, WCW went out of business. Uh which is a, a night I'll never forget. What, what were your thoughts when that happened? And uh, tell me about the transition to getting picked up by WWF. Yeah, that's funny. You said you're like you're one, you're one of the main guys until until they closed. <laughs> until they you made them close. No, no, no. You <laughs> no, know, I, no, people blame different people. You know, I had I had David Arquette on this podcast about a year a year maybe a year and a half ago, and he was convinced. I finally I saw him recently, and he's finally realized because he's been around the business that he wasn't. He was convinced because all the fans would would give him a hard time that he killed WCW, and 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 I had oh god no. I was like so many things killed WCW, and it didn't. You know, now in hindsight, knowing what we know with the merger it didn't have a chance even if the ratings were great they didn't want wrestling so they were they were secretly trying to get rid of the company you know uh you know we didn't know that at the time we just thought that they sold it because it was losing a fortune which it was but um but i had to i I didn't you know i tried to tell him i'm like what's the difference nothing against russo but i tried to tell him what's the difference between you being the world champion and russo being the world champion because both things happen i said the only difference is you being the world champion gets on usa today on the front page Russo does it. So, and he finally, I saw him at a Legends of Wrestling show in Detroit a couple months ago, about a month ago. And I said, David, do you finally realize that you've been around this business now for the last year or so that you didn't kill WCW? He goes, yes, I really, really uh, finally realized it. And I was, I was talking to his wife the, the night, that was the night before at the bar. I was talking to his wife the night at the show and, um, uh, talking about it, and she was like, "Thank you for any little piece you might have done, because I guess it really, it really ate him up." So I wasn't trying to make it seem like the cruiserweights right. killed WCW. That was uh, the more I learned. Poor, poor guy. Yeah, the more poor guy, I th- because you know, really, he he was he was just such a wrestling fan, and to be put in that spot, he was just like, "Okay, let's do it." And then for people to say like, "Oh, he killed WCW," that's, he was such a small part of that. I mean, not. It was so much bigger than him or me or anyone there. You remember Hulk Hogan was still there. The outsiders were still there. So if they could, some of the biggest names in wrestling couldn't save WCW, then it was unsavable at that time. You, 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 it was, it was done. You know, like you said, the powers to be above us didn't want wrestling anymore. And that's why that's, you know, that's one of the reasons, the real reasons why it just didn't succeed among others. But still, you know, yeah, uh, the more I learn about it, though, the more I think even if we were doing well, they would have found a way to get rid of us. But the fact that we weren't doing well, uh, it made it made it a lot easier. Um, oh, yeah. Talk talk about the transformation, the transition from WCW, which was sort of a mess, uh, especially at the end, to WWE, WWF, which was a totally different animal, as you know. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, your original question, um, that that night, that, that night that we were in Panama City Beach and there was some rumblings. I know that, that Eric Bischoff and the Fusion group was trying to 
you know, put some money together, put an offer together and buy WCW. Um, and then, you know, that night when we got to Panama City and all of a sudden we see all the WWE brass there and Shane McMahon and we're like, oh, I guess we just got bought. You know, I was I was totally I was fine with it, you know, because I, I was really confident in, in my ability at that time. I was still a really young guy. So I knew I had a future. So if it wasn't with WWE at the time, I was going to go to, you know, to uh, hopefully Japan. Japan. Or, yeah. You know, in, the Indies weren't where they were yet, you know. But, you know, I, I was pretty confident. I was okay. And then, um, um, then you know, going to WWE, you know, I was like, for WWF at the time, yeah, I was like, Eddie was there. I was, I was happy. I was like, hey, man, I get reunited with my, with my bro, with my brother, you know. So, um, yeah, that was, that was awesome. And then the transition... You know, the transition was a little rough a little bit because you go from being the cruiserweight guy for a minute and then um, um, going to a new organization where you kind of started over. And I had Eddie and I had Jericho and those guys told me, look, hey, everything you've done in, in you know, WCW, it starts new here because this is a different audience. They don't, they don't know it in a sense. I mean, there's some that cross over, of course, sure. but a lot of them didn't, you know. And the, luckily I had a real name behind me going in you know i remember my very first day in wwf catering uh this is when vince mcmahon used to still eat at catering he comes up to me and he goes hey you know i'm really happy to have you i respect your family very much and uh you know we hope we have a a good relationship here and i was like wow that's mr man you know i was like wow all right great you know that's the kind of guy that 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 he was that he is you know he was you know he's to me i look at it he's such a, a businessman you know he looked at me like Okay, cool. You're a third generation wrestler. Let's, you know, you're an investment. Let's make some money together. Just out of curiosity, since you brought it up, where does Vince eat now? Vince, at the end, when I left, so I don't know. I, I haven't been there in a bit. So where he used to eat was in catering with us. And right. now, he, then, then he'd eat in his office. At the last, at the end, he'd eat in his office to where I guess he just wanted some peace and quiet. Nobody going up to him and, uh, you know, pitching ideas and that kind of stuff, you know. So, uh, you know, we'd still go pitch ideas to him, but we'd knock on his door first. And then he'd, you know, while, while we were eating, you know, um, the, the the normal catering, which was, you know, chicken and that kind of stuff, you know, he'd walk in there and have his, his lobsters and all his different things. <laughs> and then what was funny is that Benoit was such, it was so good that every time after Vince would leave for the night, He'd go in and raid his office and, you know, find, <laughs> and find, you know, like three full filet mignons that are not, you know, never touched that are in, you know, other to-go boxes with the lobsters and stuff. And and Chris would come and he goes, hey, look what I got. <laughs> I'm like, all right, cool. I got you one, too. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, so we just jump on the road and in, in, the, in our rental car, we'd be eating, uh, you know, Vince's lobster, leftovers? Cold, cold. Yeah, well, that the ones he never touched, you know, because they'd be like sure. four or five steaks in there and you know, three lobster tails and stuff. Never touched in a whole different, you know, catering thing. And we'd be in the, we'd be in our rental cars driving from, you know, Dalton, Georgia back to Atlanta eating cold filet mignon and, and lobster. <laughs> the very reason I do this podcast is because of tidbits like that that people would never know. That's tremendous. And I could honestly. That's true. I can absolutely see Chris doing that. Unfortunately, we'll get to Chris later on. Hey, t t talk to me but, about working yeah, with... But he, go he ahead. would do it on the download, right? You can see him doing that on the download. <laughs> he would sit there and kind of look at you and kind of look around and he'd have a uh, uh, two-go two to containers and kind of just look around and, hey, whisper to you, look what I got. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he, he was such the, 
the the kayfabe or the the Houdini, the Houdini we'd call him. Remember? Yeah, <laughs> he was he was always on the down low. I was telling a story. I think I sold it on Talk Is Jericho uh, when I was on a few a few months ago. Um, where I think you might have been there. It was in Michigan and. Uh, not like Detroit, one of the like Saginaw, one of those kind of towns. And we went out with Ben, uh, went out with Chris Benoit and the Luchadors, the Mexicans. After I don't know if you were there, but you'll recognize the story if you were. And Hoovy was driving, and Hoovy had the keys, and he left it on the table to go uh, go get a drink. And Benoit grabbed the keys. Do you remember that? Were you there? I wasn't there, but I know that he was a silent river and would probably hit the keys. Well, right? and that was the thing. That was the thing is is uh, is he took the keys and then uh, by at the end of the night, psycho, you know, Hoovy's reaching into every pocket and he can't find him, and then he's going blaming, you know, how Hoovy is. He's blaming psychosis, yeah. putting it on him, and psychosis is just going. I didn't do it. You know, MFR and 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 you know they're they're yelling at each other and getting nasty. And then you know they went and looked. You know, I think Chris probably said, Go, "Why don't you ask the bartender if somebody turned him in?" And you know, while they were there, he put him on a chair. You know, at a bar stool yeah. uh, next to where we were sitting, and. You know, and then he'd get back and Hoovy's like, there's the keys. And I was like, I said to Benoit at the time, I said, and I told the story, I talked to Jericho, I said, when are we going to smarten them up? He goes, we're not. And yeah. I said, what's right. the fun of it? What, what's the fun of it if they think that they, they was just sitting on that chair all the time? And he goes, I think it's, it's funny to me. And who am I to tell Benoit we're going to... We're going to spoil the rib. The fun of it was to, was to Benoit. He didn't care about what other people thought. He was amusing himself. He sure. came from that Canadian... The Calgary, you know, school of ribbing, where I remember one time, and it was so funny because Booker T would be in, you know, in the dressing room, and Booker T was very um, uh, possessive of his, you know, his Red Bulls. You know, he put a he, he put a he put a Red Bull in, you know, in the in the ice chest, and uh, you know, we never we didn't get Red Bulls in the ice chest. We got you know we got waters and Gatorades and yeah. maybe a Sprite or something like that. Um, but you know, there'd be a Red Bull in there, and you know, we all knew. Anybody who knew it was you know, Booker's Red Bull you would touch it. Well, like they have like some random new person walk in there and look in there, oh, Red Bull, and he'd start drinking it. And Booker T would flip out like, damn it, you know we don't got Red Bulls in here. And if you know that's not yours, there's one Red Bull, just one. You take that one, you know? And well, and then he'd throw the ice chest and we'd all kind of be kind of laughing a little bit. And the, and the guy who took it would be scared to death because sure. Booker freaking out, right? So one time Booker comes in with, with this hot, uh, hot, a hot couple of hot dogs, and he he leaves, leaves them there for a second, like trusting us because of course you know we're not going to touch his stuff. Well, as soon as he walks away, we grab his hot dog. <laughs> we, we didn't do anything; we just hit him. We hit him. So now he's like, "Hey, which one did you took my hot dogs?" You know, and we're like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, talking about. But so he's, and we're all denying it, and he's throwing a fit. He's like, he's like pissed, like, "Where's my hot dogs? Where's my hot dogs?" You son of a bitch, you touch it on my, on my stuff. You got to learn some respect in here, you know? So then Benoit put the mustard on his lip, on the side of his <laughs> mouth, and walked up, to, and walked up to, to Booker, just so Booker could see it. There was like an extra amount of, hot, of, of mustard, yeah. you know? Like, and, and, and Booker like, hey, did you touch my hot dog? And Benoit looks right him, right him in the face, and he looks him in the face and goes, no, and just walks away. <laughs> and, and he's got mustard on his mouth. And then, of course, you know, five minutes later, we... Here's your hot dog. She's like, you motherfucker. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a good it was a it was a a, um, a uh, hurtless rib, of course. But 
that was Benoit. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that because at that same Legends of Wrestling show in Detroit a couple, last month, a couple months ago, that I saw David Arquette Booker was there, and we did. I hosted a Q and A, and one of the questions uh-huh. on the Q and A was, uh, uh, "You need to take a moment." No. No, oh, I thought somebody was talking to you. Oh, one oh of the, no, I'm good. One of the questions on the Q&A was uh, to all the talent on the stage, what was your the, the, the most uh, th- you know, thing that you got ribbed about? And Booker talked about for 25 years in his career, everybody kept messing with that Red Bull from WCW to all the way to WWE. They knew, and he told the same story, and he was laughing about it. He's like, they knew that was my Red Bull. It wasn't anybody else's Red Bull. It was my Red Bull. Nobody drank my Red Bull, but then you'd have people come in and giving me a hard time. And every time that it would happen, I'd lose my mind, and and, and he was laughing about it. But uh, it's oh, funny, yeah. funny that you brought that up because it's still fresh on his mind as well. Um Oh yeah, man. That's, that's that was good times. Yeah, good stories, man. That's why I love doing this. Um, tell me about working with your dad in WWE. Uh, that was probably the first time, other than maybe some indies that you had, or maybe in Mexico that you had worked with them. Had, had you ever worked with them before? Um, not to that extent, you know. Not to that extent. Um, uh, that was awesome. Working with my dad was really such a it was such a uh, a dream come true. And a nightmare at the same time. <laughs> oh, jeez. He was, uh, you know, he was, he was such a great guy. I love my dad. But, you know, he was, you know, he's from that old school mentality, man. It was like, you know, his way or the highway. And they were set in their ways, you know. So working with him and having him as my as my manager in a sense, um, man, just I look, I go and look back at some of those skits and stuff that we did. They were so good. And the WWE, lo- they loved my dad and that combination just because of, you know, the vignettes that we would do. And then at one point he had his, his old ring rats that would follow him around <laughs> and that kind of stuff. You know, remember, if you remember that, yeah. that it was his ring girls, you know, the, his, his, uh, you know, his roadies, you know, and uh, whatever you would call it. And, um, uh, they, they loved, it. it was awesome. And then working to him with him in the ring was great. Now there'd be, sometimes we'd be on the road where we'd have to, we'd have to drive separate because we would be getting on each other's nerves and, you know, instead of putting up with it, you know, he's my dad. We'd be, we'd, we were more like brothers. We were like each other's throats sometimes, you know? So, um, you know, like I said, that was the nightmare part, but really, I really have no, nothing but fond memories about it, man. It was really, really cool. And, and just to get to learn from him and, and, you know, I mean, just if I look back at my career, that's definitely a highlight of my career, you know, working sure. with Eddie. And at the time, at the time it was me and my dad doing stuff against Eddie. It was, it was really cool. You know, it's funny what a lot of people don't know. Probably they, they don't realize and tell me if, 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 if I'm a hundred percent on the mark is a lot of the shtick that you and Eddie did and you and your dad and Eddie did. That was a, that was a play, a play on what would happen most nights at the bar after everybody had a few drinks. Oh yeah. I mean, that would, that would be, yeah. When we had a couple of drinks at the bar, it would be, you know, definitely much more bigger and intense. But we, you know, on, no, on but TV, you, well, you're playing, you're playing yeah. off of that, yeah. that same kind of, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was much more entertaining at the bar. I got to tell you, but it was entertaining stuff in, uh, in the skits as well. Um, I, oh, had to- yeah. I had totally, totally forgot, uh, when I was doing some, um, some research for this, uh, discussion i totally forgot about the kerwin white gimmick that you did uh which uh, for people that don't may may not remember you basically uh uh, turned down your uh 
your Latino heritage and wanted to be a white Anglo-American and, and had a, uh, and, and, you know, basically turned yourself into a, a white person of white privilege, as they would say in this day and age. Um, yeah, well, man. <laughs> wondering what the reaction was at the time and what your thoughts are if that same gimmick was to be done in today's PC crazy culture. So I got off the plane from Japan one time and I get to Raw or SmackDown, whatever it was, and Vince McMahon passes me in the hall and goes, hello, Kerwin. And I went, what? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, well, today you're going to denounce your Hispanic heritage and you're going to become Kerwin White, a white guy. And I was like, oh, in my mind, I'm thinking, shit. Then I'm thinking, all right, let's do it. And he was like, all right, great. So he, I, I, I had a meeting with him. I said, look, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. I mean, let's, if you're going to be a white guy, I'm denouncing my Hispanic heritage and I'm basically making fun of white people too because I'm dressing this super over the top, you know, white and dancing like with no rhythm and, <laughs> and uh, wearing, you know, so, you know, paisley and pastel colors and stuff. So I had the Hispanics p- pissed off at me because I was denouncing their heritage. I had the whites pissed off at me because I'm saying, hey, this is how you, I'm you guys. Living. You're not us. I go, oh, yes, I am. This is how you dress, you know, and that kind of stuff. So I was all about it. I go, hey, if I'm a heel, let's do it. And I told Vince, I go, at the end of this, look, I, I want to come out in a in a white hood, you know. <laughs> if you want, if that's the case, let's, let's go all the way with it. And let's, you know, let's really, if we're going to be a heel, and I go, let's do it. Let's get everybody to hate us. Now, of course, today's, um, you know, uh, PC culture probably wouldn't work. And at the time, it really didn't work either because it kind of got a little too racist in a sense. I mean, yeah. I started, you know, saying my my – my saying was, if it's not white, it's not right. Uh, if it's, um, you know, my finish changed to the white out, you know, it was, <laughs> you know, it was just play on words and stuff like that. And the way we look at it in wrestling, it's just, it's a movie. You're in a sense playing a, a racist role, if you want to call it, you know, whatever, even though I'm, what am I? I was a Hispanic guy playing a white guy saying that I'm not Hispanic and now I'm white. So it was such blurred lines and stuff that, you know, whatever it is, what it is. And it's one of those that, you know, like another, another example of, of getting lemons and you just try to make lemonade out of it. Yeah. Do you ever see the skit on Saturday night live? This has nothing to do with anything, but it's my favorite skit ever on Saturday night live where Eddie, they just Eddie Murphy up as an, in, as a white guy. I love that one. I love that. Yeah, he went on the bus, and they were like, "Oh, you don't have to pay." And then when uh, the 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 last uh, African American guy on the bus got off, it was like, uh, you know, now we can party. And everybody had brought right. out cake, right. and they were dancing. The music went on, and I often wonder. I wonder if that Kerwin White was sort of a takeoff on that skit, because um, that skit I always thought was way ahead of its time. But uh, just how funny to, was that, man? I, I love that Eddie Murphy skit. That's a great one. I, and I refer, I go back to that one a lot, actually. And that was one of my favorite ones. You know, he was dressed up to see what it was like to be sure. a white guy, right? And how <laughs> it was just funny. But um, every stereotype yeah, you know that every yeah. stereotype oh, that yeah. the worst person in the world would think, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the food, you, we, we, we don't take your money here, you know, the free food. And right. he, tried, and, he tried to pay. They're like, no, no, no. <laughs> he's like, what? Just take it. Oh, oh okay. Hmm. That's peculiar. <laughs> yeah, that's peculiar. Yeah, yeah that. Yeah, that's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> hey, um, not to break things down, but uh, there's a couple things sure. in in your life that that uh, you were part of that uh, that you know that can't all be uh, roses, I guess. Um, 
You correct me if I'm wrong. You were the one who ended up finding Eddie in Minnesota. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That's, that's uh, correct. Eddie um, basically basically took his last breath in my arms. Oh, jeez. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was a tough one. I mean, you remember that day? It was, uh, you know, that was one of those. That was, um, you know, we were all on the road going. Uh, it was a super show in Minnesota that we were raw at SmackDown was there because we were all going overseas the next day or that night, I believe. And, um, you know, I mean, like it, uh, it was one of those things that just, you know, happened and, uh, you know, changed. I remember, you know, having to make the calls and, and that was, that was, you know, that was tough, but I remember being at the hotel room and having Vince McMahon and, uh, Triple H and, and, um, Shawn Michaels, they, they had come down all three of them and they're like, what? so Vince asked me, what do, what do we do? what do we do? Do we cancel this show? And I was like, absolutely not. I go, why would you cancel the show? Eddie would net that would, that would, you know, put a different spin on his death, something that he would never want to happen. you know, the show must go on. So that's when they changed it to basically a memorial for Eddie, you know, that show. Right. And, uh, yeah, you know, so that was, uh, that was, a it was, <laughs> man, it was, it was an easy one, man. We look back at it now. And it's just one of those that just, you know, it's life, man. It makes you look at life differently and appreciate life. And, um, you know, I, I'm very grateful that I'm the one that found him. And then it wasn't some random person or his wife or his kids, you know. That's yeah. something that I look at it and it was, it was in a blessing in a sense. It, well, was there any ideas that he, he he was in bad health or that he wasn't feeling well? Any or Was it just a total shock out of nowhere? Yeah, man, there's some other there's some stories going around, but. Really, it was a shock kind of out of nowhere. I know that he had been having um, some issues as far as um, kind of be talking to you and kind of like would, almost like an, a uh, narcolepsy, narcoleptic issues where you'd be talking and then you kind of would doze off and then, you know, would kind of wake up and then, you know, like, oh, what were you talking about? Okay, and continue, which I guess, I mean, I'm not a heart specialist, but I hear that that's a... Um, maybe a sign of maybe, you know, heart not pumping correctly or something like that. But, um, I know that, that, that I had never seen that, but I know I had heard maybe like, you know, Vicky and stuff talking and I don't know the full story and I want to elaborate too much or, or, or uh, speculate too much, but, um, you know, so there was a little hints, but nothing really. I mean, he's, he was still wrestling at the super crazy high level. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it wasn't like, you know, and he looked like a million bucks and, yep. you know, uh, I don't know, man. It's just one of those that just, you know, if you're 38 year, you're 38 years old and you get heart disease, it's kind of crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. The next couple of years, you, you were involved in a lot of Eddie related storylines. Vicky became involved. Rey Mysterio became involved. Um, in that time, was there any ever any trepidation on your part or the family's part about doing storylines based off of the death or was you, was it just a family motto? The show must go on and, you know, uh, got to keep rolling. You know, at the time you're thinking, you, you, you definitely the show must go on. Um, when I look back at it now and I see it's, um, I remember, and I wasn't involved in this part of storyline when it was Randy Orton and he was, I don't know if he was on some of Ray Mysterio and they were talking about, you know, uh, Eddie dying and that kind of stuff in the storyline. Um, and I know it wasn't Randy's idea, but that was, to me, I look back at it, it was such weak writing. It was such easy, 
cheap heat, as we call it in the wrestling world, just such weak writing that just was just bad taste. It wasn't like it, it didn't make Randy more of a heel. It didn't really further that storyline. It just, it was just bad writing, you know, really just, just cheap, easy writing. And I look back at it going, God, that just, that just, that sucked. And some, someone recently, and I don't really watch the show too much anymore, but someone recently said a couple months ago, they rehashed, I don't know, it was um, the, the new kid, there's the um, Almas, Cien, Cien, Cien Almas, whatever his name yeah. is. Um, but he, um, I think it was him, I'm, I, if I'm not mistaken, that they said they hashed something about Eddie, you know, that he that he's the greatest, you know, Latino star and uh, bigger than Eddie and bigger than this. And I'm like, God, I just... It's just weak and played out writing, you know. I mean, yeah. it's like it's just it's it's easy. I mean, anybody, my my, you know, a ten year old kid can write that. It's not there's nothing witty or good about or or you know different that's smart about it. It was just really just weak. So when I look back at it like this. Some things bringing bringing Vicky into the into the play that was really cool and having her turn on Rey Mysterio that was that was really cool. And it really had nothing to do with Eddie. That was just her in the business and it kind of forwarding mine and Ray's uh, um, storyline. And then, you know, thank God it really took her off. Yeah. You know, made her part of the wrestling world, which she didn't know how good she was going to be. And, you know, it was great for her. Um, so when you look back like that, like there were parts of it that were good. And there was part that was very tasteless, you know. Any particular reason for leaving WWE or you just tired of the road? Many reasons, man. Many reasons. You know, you get, you're, you get, you're not being used the way you feel you should be in use. And, you know, they all have, they, it's, you know, it's their business, their company. So they have their, their, their way and their idea. Um, I, you know, man, I was just, it got to the point where I was tired of being on the road. My kids were getting older. You know, I was like, I didn't want them to go with, grow up without a dad, right. you know, and not, not older, older, but they were there since they started knowing that I was gone and I wasn't around. So that had a huge factor in it. Of course, the factor that I was kind of unhappy um, being used and being on the road just I mean it, it'd been a long time and and um, you know at, at the point to where you you feel okay so they're using you to get certain other people over so uh, the store the reason I actually left was I was there um, they had me I don't know if you remember the wrestler named Yoshi Tatsu yeah. great guy real good guy good good Japanese wrestler it was good but I, I was like they wanted me to put him over, you know, and I was kind of like, wait a minute. Okay, hold on. So I went to Johnny Ace and I said, well, why is this the case? I mean, are we going to go somewhere with it? Uh, no, it's just a, just a match on whatever, you know, Saturday night show. I'm like, well, okay, let, let's talk money. This is a business, right? And Johnny's like, yeah. I said, okay, who's going to make you more money? Yoshitatsu or Chavo Guerrero? And he was like, Chavo Guerrero. And I said, yes. Yeah, correct. So why is this happening? What's going on with this? If we're looking at a pure business sense, what does this have to do with anything? And I'm all for, if you look at my, my, my record in my past, you know, putting people over, losing to somebody, but something for the right reason. Sure. You know, I put a lot of people over. But I was kind of like, this is not making any sense. And he's like, well, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking about branching out in Japan and this and that. And I'm like, okay, thinking about, you're just giving me a line of bull crap. So that's when I just said, okay, I'm done. I, I'm putting in my notice and, and Johnny was like, well, let me talk over Vince, you know, and, and 
you know, it took them two or three weeks to get back to me. And finally he's like, okay, we're going to give you like a conditional notice where it was, okay, we'll give you notice, but you know, you, you, usually you can go work and do anything you want to do. I, I had a, I had a few months that I had to kind of run everything by them and they really wanted me to just kind of stay home and not do anything. So I was like, so what's going on? You're, are you realizing that you just put 11 years of TV into me and I'm you know, more valuable than you're, you know, <laughs> than you're thinking or what, you know? Well, you know, so it, it's one of those that just, it was the right time, man. And, and I have zero regrets. It was one of those, like, I left on my terms, which is, you know, a lot of people don't, that doesn't happen in WWE very often. Sure. But I was very happy with it, man. I was very, um, I was, I was cool with that. I was able to do, that wasn't, I'm not saying that it was easy. There was times that, you know, now you got to revet yourself and you're thinking, if I'm leaving wrestling, what am I going to do now? You know, but, uh, you know, you're able to do all the stuff that I'm doing now, um, because really of of wrestling and that WWE run and and if I would have stayed there then I I would have been such more just one dimensional I just would have been wrestling and that's kind of it you know whether I've been an agent or whatever you know would have gone you know there but you, it would have been okay the same thing and it would have been a good a good living yeah great would I've been worked my butt off for it yeah absolutely uh, but you know the freedom and stuff that I'm doing now you know it's like. I could not have done any of it unless I left. Sure. I'm thankful for it, you know. Yeah. Sure. Let's get back to Benoit. Uh, I've seen you a couple yeah. of times since that whole thing happened. I think we put off talking about it because um, <clears throat> we were very, both very close to his family. Um, just, to, just so you, I don't know if you know my take on it. Um, I saw a, par, a, 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 a side of Chris Benoit that very few people saw. Uh, we, mm, talk uh, to me about that. well, in, in Peachtree city, uh, where, right, uh, right, the Finleys right. lived, the, the Regals lived, uh, there was, uh, me and my wife, uh, there was a couple named Jill and Darwin. Darwin was one of the, uh, crank. He was a crane operator for WCW. And, um, right, I remember Darwin. Yeah. Sure. And, uh, and we all used to, uh, and, and Benoit's, we all used to, to, uh, socialize, and you would, sure. and I would, we would see little strange things when those two were not getting along. The way he reacted was not the way, I don't want to say a normal person, but it just was, was awkward. Then they kind of went away. They, 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 we didn't even, nobody in that group even knew when this whole thing went down that they had bought that house that they were, that, that, that it all went down in. They, they totally went away because, you know, Chris was, I think Chris was afraid that there were parts of him that he didn't want showing that were starting to show. But they would still talk to grunge because, and I've said this on, on, on yeah, a bunch yeah, of different yeah, podcasts. Yeah. Grunge was a fuck up. Got love grunge, miss him to death, but he was, you know, he was grunge. And sure. so they both knew him and they both, they didn't think that they would, that he would judge them. So they were both comfortable, uh, when they would get in really bad fights or Nancy needed a place to stay or Chris would, would, would leave and need some time alone. They were really comfortable with grunge. He was the only person they would confide in. What they didn't realize is grunge was calling me going, Hey, you know, it's just, you know, listen to this story. And, 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 and I never told anybody cause it wasn't my place. Sure. So sure. long story short, when I, I was taking a nap, God knows why I don't ever nap, but I was taking a nap. Uh, my, my son, who's now 24, he was a lot younger, obviously woke me up about six in, at night and said, Chris Benoit died. Chris and Nancy and Daniel died. And I said, in my mind, I said, all right, whatever that, whatever happened, 
was happened in that house. There was no doubt in my mind that, you know, for most people would say, oh, you know, God, you know, maybe it was a gas leak. Maybe, you know, it was murder. It was a, a robbery gone wrong. Sure. Uh, to me, there was no doubt in my mind. And I think if you remember on the 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 tribute they had to him, uh, Steve Regal sort of sort of sh- said, I don't want to talk about Chris personally. I just want to talk about Chris, the wrestler, because I think. Steve, uh, William, Steve, whatever uh, they call him now, I think he sort of knew too from that little group, um, you know, had that gut feeling. So my my question to you is you spoke to him a couple of times. They say now after Nancy was already gone, uh, I guess there's no proof of that other than an autopsy. Um, as somebody who traveled with him a lot towards the end of, of, of his life career, did you – ever see any of that or was he just so good at hiding that that uh you never thought that there was anything wrong well remember um nobody can push your buttons like your spouse sure no one oh there's no one it went both ways man so Uh, you know yeah yeah so so and especially you have another spouse and i'm not uh um i'm just giving my take i'm not defending i'm just giving my take there's never any you have a spouse that's in the wrestling business. So you have two wrestlers in a sense that are, you know, and in this crazy business that are, that are, could be volatile, that could be, you know, um, have screws loose if you want to call it, but, and and her just as much as him because she was just, you know, she was just as much as a wrestler as he was, even though she kind of stepped away from the business in the last few years, but she had been involved in that business for 15 plus years, you know? So if not more, so, um, I, I see, I see that. And, I, and what I, me being with him and spending really the last six months to a year with him, you know, after Eddie died, Eddie was both of mine and Chris's go-to guy. Right. So when Eddie le- left, we became each other's go-to guys and we'd stay each other like crazy. And we were always close before, but we became very close afterwards. Like as close as you can get, you know, basically without being, actual brothers you know we would spend 20 on the road 24 7 with each other and we would be um you know the only time we didn't spend time with each other is, is when he'd go to his room and i'd go to my room and we'd give each other a kiss on the cheek and say love you man hey see you down at 7 30 for breakfast and go train okay great and then after that we were with each other 24 7 really i mean at, at the buildings you know eating together and you know training together traveling together wrestling against each other. So I, I, and that's a whole year of seeing somebody, you know, I mean, that, that's, you, you see the, you know, the most intimate of that person. Now, Nancy wasn't on the road. So I didn't see that, that uh, relationship together. I just saw how Chris was. Um, so I didn't see any of, of those cracks in the foundation with Chris, you know, like that. In fact, he would, he was never, you know, I mean, he would always calm me and Eddie down as far as, you know, if we wanted to, you know, get in a, you know, in a fight with the Avis bus driver, you know, to <laughs> see him calming us down, you know, uh, you know, never us to really to him, you know? Right. So when it happened, I was very, you know, very in shock and I had spent the night of his house three, two or three, three days before probably, you know, oh, wow. we would just travel through there and he, I, he get me in his room and, in his house and, and had him in the guest room. And if you remember, Chris was a very private guy. Yes. He, he wasn't, he's very, very private. So I see that, you know, I mean, he didn't want any need to tell anybody that I spent the night at his house, 
how his house was, where his house was. He didn't want, he, he was kind of adamant about that. Hey man, this is just between me and you. Said, of course, man, come on. You know, he didn't want me telling the boys, hey, he's sitting at Chris's house. None of that. Like, so he's such a a private guy. He just wanted his own privacy, and he got tired. You know, he didn't like the celebrity of it. He loved wrestling. He just didn't like the celebrity of it. He wanted to be able to go to a, uh, you know, a restaurant and eat without being Chris Benoit. He just wanted to be uh, a person, you know. I mean, not being yeah. Chris Benoit the wrestler. He wanted to be Chris Benoit the person. Which, you know, in this business, doesn't, you know, you lose that when you get on TV and especially you get to his, uh, uh, I guess, status in the wrestling world, but his sure. celebrity in the wrestling world. Um, so I, I never saw it, man. I never saw it. It was, it was very much a shock to me. And we definitely talked after, at least after Nancy, his wife, was gone. We definitely talked. And I think it was right before his son Past, you know, and I'm saying it in in with all due respect in the nicest way. Um, in fact, yes, this weekend on Saturday, I I had done a little appearance for Booker T in Houston, and I was as I was driving back to the airport, as I was getting a ride back to the airport, I had to stop the guy talking to me because I passed right by the sleep in at the airport. Remember, there's a little restaurant uh, hotel row right there, yeah, uh, and by by Houston Intercontinental Airport. And we passed right by the sleep in and I looked at it and I said, that's the last, that's where I received Benoit's last text right before I believe that he, uh, you know, hit the, in, the incident with his son happened. And the guy looked at me, he was like, oh my God. I was like, yeah, right there. Hmm. You know, how many years ago, night 2007, I believe it was. So 12 years ago, whatever it was, but it was, it was kind of a surreal moment and kind of like going like, uh, like, okay, you know, and. That was a tough one, man. Losing Eddie was, was one thing because, you know, in natural causes. And, and, you know, Eddie was just like the weight of the world was on Eddie. And it was kind of like he was, I remember him telling me a couple of times, you know, hey, man, I'm, you know, he's a, a believer in Christ and, you know, go to heaven and hell type thing. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm just ready, man. I'm done with this life and I'm ready to, I'm ready to, you know, go, you know, go see my maker. And I was like, what? what are you talking about, man? You're 38 years old, man. Are you seriously? Like, dude, you got a lot of long life ahead of you. And of course it didn't. So he was, you know, that he was ready. I don't know if that was a foretelling of, of what was going to happen in the future. But, um, when losing Chris, you know, that was just, that was just not natural. It was out of completely out of the blue. And, and it just wasn't, you know, man, it just, you know, that's something that just didn't need to happen, you know? So oh. that one, that would hurt a lot a lot more. I can't say it hurt a lot more. I just hurt differently for different reasons. I was definitely not at peace with Chris's as I was with Eddie's. Yeah. I know that you've said that uh, in other interviews that he sounded quote unquote off uh, when you spoke to him at, at, at any, at any point, did you have that feeling in your gut? Like something like, I, I, I think something bad may be going on or do you just, uh, just yeah. think. Yeah, man, I did. I did. I mean, when we left, when he texted, the last time I spoke to him, not text, the last time I spoke to him, we were talking and he was, he missed the, he was supposed to come in, was supposed to meet him at the airport and he, 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 he didn't, he was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I, you know, uh, I missed a flight because Nancy and Daniel are very sick and, you know, and this and I was like, oh man, oh, okay, okay. Then we'll, he's, I'll be there tomorrow. I'll be there tomorrow. I said, okay, well, uh, well, call me, you know, in, in wherever, Laredo, whatever, and we'll come pick you up at the airport. Okay, okay. And when we ended, now we always said we love each other, right? But when we ended, it was like, 
he made a point. He said, Chavo, yeah, he goes, I love you. And and so I'd always, we'd always say, hey, man, I love you, brother. Okay, love you too, man. That kind of stuff. But no, it was like a, not a force, but a deliberate Chavo, I need to tell you, basically, I love you. So I, I hung up and I went, wait a minute, that was weird. So I called him back about four minutes, four or five minutes later. I said, Chris, you all right, man? He says, I'm okay, man. I just had a real stressful, really stressful weekend. And, uh, um, man, it's just like, you know, just, just a real stressful one. And I'm okay, man. I'm okay. I was like, okay, okay, man. I'm here if you need me, man. And he was like, okay, okay. Yeah. I love you, brother. I love you too, man. So that's the last time I talked to him. So definitely it was enough for me to call him back and say, is everything okay? I truly, I truly believe, and I've said this before, that if Johnny Grunge hadn't passed away, that they'd all still be alive. Uh, they lost their outlet. Uh, you know, you, you, as you said, Chris is such Maybe. a private. Uh, Chris is such a was such a private person, especially back at that time. Like I said, for the little group in Peachtree City, the biggest shock wasn't you know who 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 was the one that flipped. Was it Nancy that flipped and and lost her mind, or was it Chris that flipped and lost his mind? The biggest shock who, was who when the hell. But but the biggest shock was when did they move to that house? I mean, I don't want to laugh yeah, about right. it, but that was, that was, I mean, that was the big shock of the thing is because we had so no you, idea. You, did, you guys did it. You guys didn't even know that they weren't there in Peachtree anymore. No, no. They just, uh, at the point where they, uh, he, I don't want to say wow. exposed, but sure. uh, it's sort of sure. the perfect word at the point where his shortcomings as, uh, and him and Nancy's shortcomings sort of got exposed a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit, uh, sure. Sure. totally pulled away. Uh, didn't have anything to yeah, do with yeah. them from, from then on. I'd see him, if I'd see him at a show, he'd be cool. But as, as far as socializing, nothing. And like I said, when, when we heard the news, um, and we all started talking to each other to try to, you know, uh, you know, you know, just, you know, you, you, you reach out to people and try to make sense of, 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 a, of something that doesn't make any sense. But, um, right. but like I said, the biggest surprise was when did they move to Fayetteville? <laughs> yeah, wow. That's I mean, crazy. That's crazy. You know, and, and then you look back at it too, like all the, you know, at the at the time, his father, Mike, uh, you know, had his brain, Chris's brain analyzed, and they said it was a brain of a 80-year-old, you know, because of the fact that they said all the concussions and the trauma to his brain. Um, you know, and at the time, where, you know, we didn't, no one knew what CTE was. We're like, I don't know. If that, yeah, yeah, okay. And I, I had done an interview saying, yeah, I, I, I see that, that his father's, you know, trying to figure this out. So I, I get it, but I didn't really see anything of it. Now I look back at it, and now with all we know with CTE and all the concussion, you know, all the concussion syndrome stuff that I'm like, wow, I, God, that was it. Because, you know, all the, con all the concussions he's had and the brain, brain trauma, I was like, man, is this, was that having something to do with it? You know, man, really makes you really think. It makes you really think like, okay, uh, we all have those concussions too, you know, what, how is it going to affect us? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that you was know? a factor for sure, but you know, an 80, an 80 year old man can't, uh, you know, get on an airplane and, and meet up with Chavo and go check in the sleep in and then go work out and then go to the ma the matches that night and, and do that and then work a, a great match and then come back and, you know, sure. go and eat, you know, that, that he was functional, functional. So, but I think well, uh, when they say if you have a brain of an 80 year old man, it's not saying you have a legit brain of an 80 year old man. You have still a, you know, 30, uh, what did he be? Must have been 39 years old, I guess, 39 year old brain but it's you know it's it looks like it's a, a trauma of an 80 year old yeah. man it's been through 
what the, the, the business, and it's not saying that he's going to be any less sharp or less active or have his body be able to go at the rate that he went at, but it's, it's, you know, it's definitely gonna, you know, if they're saying that it's, if you want to say it's like having, it's comparable to an 80 year old man's brain. I know a lot of the, a lot of the boys, uh, tried to come up with other scenarios, even though the, 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 the actual scenario had been laid out by the, the police. Um, did it take you a little bit to, to wrap your head around it or based on the phone calls you had and the, 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 the exchanges you had, did you sort of, once they uh, explained what happened, did you sort of say, yeah, unfortunately, I think that's what happened? Um, well, at first I was like, what do you mean they're gone? Like, how are they, how are they, like, they're gone. Like, and I remember, really, I remember hugging Vince McMahon when he, when he I pulled him aside. I said, what do you mean they're gone? And kind of, and he, you know, crying on the shoulder. Um I, 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 I didn't put together that, you know, that there'd been a, a double murder suicide. I didn't put that together. I was like, whoa, whoa. So when I found out about that, I was, then I was kind of like, what the, that really threw me for a loop, you know, now that's something you just can't make, make, uh, you know, you can't come to conclusion on anything. You, you, that's you just, that's something you just, it just happens. And you, I mean, I'm I lost it for words a bit uh, in a sense, but you just can't even not just fathom it, but you, you can't, you know, you can't justify any of that. You're just kind of like, what, what, what happened? You can't even comprehend it. You know? Yeah. I remember being on the phone with Jericho for hours at a time and he just, he, and I, and I was explaining to him what I told you and how I wasn't surprised. He just couldn't comprehend it. He, he refused, you know, I think at this point now, you know, he, he believes there's a combination of, you know, the tension that they had grunge, not being around who was their outlet and, uh, and the CTE, but he, he couldn't comprehend it at the time. Uh, and, and yeah. it was, it was, uh, some tough conversation with him the, the whole thing is it's still tough to talk about it's still tough to think about and i appreciate your candor sure. i appreciate your candor on it it's uh in, in hindsight i wish they that they had an outlet whether it was grunge or somebody just walked out of that house and 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 just to cool off because you know uh that's, that's that's just you know there's a lot of tragedies in life and tragedies in this business but that's just one that you know really didn't have to happen so I, I appreciate no, your uh, for sure. Appreciate your candor on for that. Sure, I, I, yeah, of course. I mean, it's like you said, it's like you and I just kind of shooting, shooting the shit, and kind of you know talking about things. And and if we were in the car together, we would have been talking about this like that. Yeah. You know, we just, you know, I get it. So tell, so talk about what you're. I know it's hard to segue from uh, from from that serious. Uh, situation but uh tell me what you're doing now i know that you had a pretty big role in front and behind the scenes at lucha underground at one point yeah. is, is that gone for good or are they still trying to put something back together you know uh, that's, that's above my pay grade <laughs> um i was i was producer on on lucha, lucha underground which not just a, a producer in the sense of a wrestling producer which is you know helping with the matches which i did but it was one of those things that i was the first season involved with every everything from uh, set design to costumes to uh, uh, ring maintenance to putting together the matches to helping the camera guys like how do we shoot wrestling all this stuff that I didn't know that I knew <laughs> I guess I found out that I knew you know I was, I was explaining to you guys like how we're shooting wrestling and how we're sound wrestling how we're directing wrestling all these different things that I've kind of really learned by watching Vince McMahon and Kevin Dunn and that kind of stuff and and, um, you know, <laughs> all this, this hands-on training that I got, uh, I was doing it at, at, at Lucha Underground. Now, after 
the first season, these, you know, these guys were Mark Burnett's guys and they were some of the best in the business. You know, they all, after the first few episodes, they got it. And then I just kind of sat back and do my other, my other part of the job. But, um, you know, really, it was really, man, hands on everything kind of, um, about the only thing I wasn't involved with was the catering, <laughs> you know, is this telling what is making the food. But it was one of us that you got to like everything and kind of being a lot of questions and brain picking, you know, and that kind of stuff. So um, that was really, really cool. I, I don't know if it's over. Um, I, I don't know. I, I hope not. I know when we first came out of the gate, we had a lot of steam. Sure. And we, in a sense, changed. We did something different, you know, which was cool. I didn't want to. I always say this, that WWE is the Coca-Cola of wrestling. And if you make another cola, all you're making is like a, a knockoff, like a RC cola, cola, you know, like a like a, a cheap knockoff of, of, of Coke. But um, we created almost like a different beverage, like a, a Red Bull in a sense. We, 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 it was still wrestling. It was still a beverage. It just was different. And the way we packaged it was different. It was more like a TV show. And, and we know, we, if you look at it, we colorized it like a, like a comic book and I mean, we, you know, we killed people on, on, you know, killed wrestlers on, on set, you know, uh, you know, in the storyline. And at one point we have a, uh, a guy who was a dragon who flies off. We have one guy who's a time traveler, Aerostar that would, that would, uh, you know, time travel to this dimension. And it worked because it was a TV show with wrestling in it. We did something different now, you know, and I was really sad to not to see that huge hiatus between season uh, three and four, because man, it was like, we're, God, we had some good, we're, we had some good buzz about us. And, and it kind of, it, 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 it's not say it fizzled, but definitely wasn't the, the momentum that we had going into that last season, whether we're over or not. I don't know. I, I hope not. I, I, I love that show. And I thought it was something really cool. It was my, I was there from the start. So it was kind of my baby in a sense, but, um, I don't know, man. We'll see, I guess, right? I've never seen it. I've heard a lot about it. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people uh, that have been on this uh, podcast have been a part of it um, and have talked about it and, and basically explained it the same way, exact way you did. I just, it's on my list of things to check out when I have a few minutes and, you know, life gets busy and i just haven't had a few minutes but uh but but right. i i remember i i remember that somebody told me it was similar to they did on impact wrestling i don't even know if you saw it they did a a deal where um where ali got killed off uh legitimately killed off as a character and somebody said to me that that was basically a ripoff of lucha underground and and i was like oh okay now well, i get that's it flatter- it's flattering you know the sincerest form of flattery is imitation so if if you I, I know the stuff that we did on that TV show, I'd seen similar stuff done on WWE, similar stuff done on, on TNA. So they obviously liked some stuff they were doing on it to to try to recreate it, you know. Um, so that's that's a it's, you know that's a compliment. Yeah, I gotta watch it. I, I, I'll tell you when I knew that you were that it was over though. Um, I was at uh, WrestleCon a few years ago. Uh, and uh, I was signing uh, autographs with, uh, or, you know, photo ops and all that with the Nasty Boys on one side and Justin Roberts on the other side. And uh, th- huh. this, li- we were right at the end of the the little section, and this line was going. There was a line for somebody that was going like in, around the entire room, and so I'm thinking, 
you know, back then, I don't think Flair and Shawn Michaels and those guys were able to do WrestleCon because of WWE commitments. And I'm wondering who, who, who it was. So I remember going up to somebody who was waiting online. I'm like, who are you waiting for? And they said, Pentagon Jr. I, I yeah. didn't, I, 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 I could, I, you know, I didn't know a Pentagon Jr. from a Rey Mysterio Jr., but, uh, but, but, but that's when it hit me, you know, that they, that, that there was something about that, that, you know, people were willing to stand in a huge line, uh, to, uh-huh. to meet this guy. So, uh, yeah, so- we, we created a, we created a cool superstar, man. He's a guy that came from triple, triple A already and, you know, was being used, but not, you know, not to the extent that he could, that he could have been. And we got him in, um, in Lucha Underground with a little bit of fine tuning. That guy, him and his brother, Phoenix, these guys are incredible. Such great yeah. wrestlers, but great characters. And that goes to show it, man. You've got a line going around the, the, the building for these guys that we did something right, you know, and I, they did something right. I would have never in a million years. I mean, if you'd have given me a hundred guesses with a thousand dollar bill in your, in your, in, out there, I wouldn't, I didn't even know the name. I, I you know, I thought they were going to say Diamond Dallas Page, Jake. This, I, I had no idea, but I could, sure, sure. could never have known. But it was, it's when my, uh, something went off in my, the light bulb went off in my head saying, you know, these guys are Lucha Undergrounds doing something right because, uh, the, these hard hardcore fans which are the hardcore the hardcore wrestlemania yeah. weekend they're yeah. they're they're st- waiting an afternoon to be able to get a picture with this guy so and that's was not that and that's was not tv like like a huge station you know a lot of homes didn't get the LA network so if it would have been on a you know a usa or a spike or something that was to so many more homes just think about what we would have done you know that, what, I mean, really it was a it was a cult following in a sense because you know, if you didn't get that network, you had to search for it and you had to try to find it. And, you know, in this day and age, if it's not easy, people aren't going to do that. It would have been fun to see if you guys could have gotten on a major network. It would have been fun to see how where you could have gone. Because just like oh, I, yeah. like you said, it was a huge niche audience. And uh, if I didn't know that before, I knew that when uh, they told me who they were waiting online for. You are working now as a fight coordinator for GLOW. And, and as you mentioned earlier, doing other stunt uh, in the Hollywood business. Did um, I know Mondo did has done a lot of stunt stuff. Did he help sort of pave the way? Or is this just something that, you, that fell into your lap independently? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? Uh, Michael Mondo left wrestling in a sense, and well, you never really leave wrestling, but no. kind of took a hiatus and, and, and became a stuntman, and and really, re- I mean, retired from from stunts with a pension, you know, from the Screen Actors Guild, uh, which is something you don't have in wrestling, you know, with, with insurance for the rest of his life and a pension for the rest of his life, which is pretty that's pretty an awesome thing, you know. But that's something that I, I definitely saw, and was something that I possibly thought I wanted to do. I wasn't sure. And, uh, Gene, judo, Gene LaBelle, um, family friend of ours. And, you know, very obviously the toughest guy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> he was, a, you know, been a stuntman for, you know, for years and years and years and was, uh, you know, was the, the guy, the wrestling guy in Hollywood for years. And I've known him since I was a kid and he always tried to get me to go into stunts knowing that I wouldn't be a wrestler. And he was, I remember having a meeting with him one time and him saying, you know, kid, you know, I get it. You want to follow in the family footsteps, but you can do this and, you know, have a retirement, have a pension and have insurance and have all of that. And I was like, Oh, okay. What did I do? Became a wrestler, of course, but, (laughs) but, um, you know, but, um, now that, you know, transitioning into that world and it kind of just happened in a sense, um, now, you know, being the the fight coordinator, uh, and the, the, and the wrestling, uh, consultant on glow, 
you know, we won an Emmy for stunts. We won a SAG award for stunts, you know, all that wow. kind of stuff. So that was pretty, pretty cool to be able to do that. And that all that kind of happened from, you know, leaving WWE and learning what took what I learned there and went to Lucha Underground and took what I learned there and going, learning, going to glow and kind of applying it there and, and taking from what I've learned there and going to like the next step, basically. So in glow, man, I'm like, you know, behind the camera in a sense with the director, I'm sitting right next to the director and all the wrestling scenes and looking for what I'm looking for. The director's looking for what he's looking for. We're looking at each other and collaborating in a sense. Uh, and of course I have the stunt coordinator with me also, who is uh Shana Duggan. So I don't want to just take all the credit cause it's not just mine. <laughs> uh, and we're, uh, you know, kind of all three collaborating in, in, in a sense. And, it's it's a pretty cool thing to create, you know, and it's create a a show like that, a Netflix show. It's pretty it's pretty neat, man. I I really enjoy it. And and are you part of the uh, union now? Oh, of course. Are you kidding me? That's that's absolutely, man. My insurance and my pensions all it's all going. It's all it's all last, paid into, which is great, you know. <laughs> last last time I, I had a conversation, I had Terry Funk on this podcast about six months ago. Yeah. I, but but last time I had a conversation that wasn't on this podcast with Terry, we were just talking about life. And he told me that the best out of all the great things that he accomplished in wrestling and, and now that he is getting older and having health issues, the best thing that ever happened to him was getting his uh, medical uh, from the screen actors guild, because he said he'd have been, he basically told me he'd have been screwed if he didn't get it. That was, that was his oh, words, yeah. not mine. Oh, so. oh for, for sure, man. No, for sure. That's something that, you know, and, and, and that's something dear to my heart to where we're trying to, you know, get, you know, wrestling to, you know, kind of to ante up and, and look, you know, wrestlers, you're not, I know we're classified as an independent contractor, but we're working for a company who says, you know, uh, we can't work for anybody else. We have to do what they say when they say we have to do it. We have to wear what they say. We have, they can find us if they want we're not independent contractors. It's not, we're, it's, 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 it's changed. That's old school. That's, it's, it's definitely changed for a publicly traded company to be still treat the wrestlers as an independent contractor. You, you, you can't do that. I mean, my, my plumber is an independent contractor, but I'm not telling him, okay, you're late for five minutes. So I'm going to find you and you can't go work for anybody else. You have to only work for me. And uh, you have to wear this, and that, that, that it's unheard of, you know. So that's something that we're trying to do, and also I get, you know, insurance for the guy and have the guys, you know, taken care of with all the, you know, the. If you if you get, in other instance, for instance, if you let's say when you're 65 years old and you get, let's say you get Hodgkin's disease, what okay, are you gonna do on. then? Yeah, the, you know, there's no, there's no pension there's no well my wife has a, my wife thank god has a god's job with a uh, good insurance so uh, uh and a pension Absolutely. and all that so um yeah. and you know but i'm a real i'm a realtor now for the most part and so you know you, you don't have any of that either it's uh it's right. it, that's that's truly an independent contractor um i, I assume right. you know obviously the waters are muddy on the other one and you know not 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 taking anyone's side but i just think as long as they're allowed to do it they're going to do it. And if somebody comes oh, along and uh, says, and, oh, for sure. you got to reclassify them, <laughs> then they'll probably reclassify them. And, you know, you oh, just, for, it's a, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's not like I've, they, they've been allowed, to, you know, WWE's been allowed to do that for so long. So, of course, they're going to do it. I mean, until somebody goes around and says, hey, you, you can't do that anymore. We have, like you said, reclassify them, then okay. But so that's, you know, we're all, yeah. that's kind of something that any wrestler who's 
not with the WWE is our board and saying, okay, yeah, that's something that we need, you know, that needs to change. Before we start talking about the finish, talking about your beer, thank you. You've been uh, yeah. you've been awesome with your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and the conversation has been great. Um, have you watched any all elite wrestling? And if so, any interest in getting involved with them? You know what? I I haven't. I didn't get the the pay per view this last time. I've seen highlights of it, and it's you know it's pretty awesome to be able to see have somebody uh, compete in a sense. WWE, nobody can really compete with them. They're, you know, like I said, they're the Coca-Cola of wrestling. Right. But to have somebody come out and, and bring an option for the fans and be an option for for the wrestlers, that's 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 really cool. So, you know, and wrestling's just in a different, uh, really cool space right now with Ring of Honor and with New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, all the different uh, indie organizations, independent wrestling is the best it's been in, in years and years and years. I don't think it's ever been this good. Yeah. It, it's that's it's it's awesome to see. It's great for the fans. It's great for wrestling, you know. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely a fan of AEW, and I hope that they succeed. And uh, haven't talked to any of them at all, and but uh, would definitely be open to it. And you know, see where I, see where the I always take I always take meetings. <laughs> I always take a meeting and see where it takes you. You know, um, you never know. We'll see. Yeah, you never know. Maybe you and uh, Dean could reunite as producers uh, for... Uh, That's right, Dean, right? And, and Arn's there too, right? Uh, I don't think he is yet. I think he's taking the summer off. Uh, last I heard, he's taking the summer off just because he needs to get... You know, you talked about, uh, you know, if you'd been on the road as a stayed with WWE as a producer and, you know, how how exhausting that is. I think he did it for he never really left the wrestling oh, business. I mean, never did. He never took a break, you know, from uh, right. NWA to WCW to WWE. He, he's always been on the road. And uh, from what I hear, I would assume that's his landing part point. But uh, last I heard uh, and I talked to him, he just wanted some time to to enjoy himself and not have to get on an airplane unless he wanted to, to go do a, yeah. you know, sign autographs and take some pictures with fans. And, uh, Good for him, so he did. it was cool to see, it's cool to see Dean Malenko there. Dean's, you know, got such knowledge and is such an asset to any company. It's really cool to see him there. And, you know, just, I mean, that, that's, that, that's a good core group. If, yeah. if you're going to, you know, put them as your, as your agents and, consultants you know for sure for sure um so let's talk comic book and comic books and beer you have comic books i understand and uh recently uh a beer that you uh that obviously the nasty boys approve of if they approve of it then uh <laughs> i'm sure it's pretty darn good T tell us about how yeah, you got man. involved in the beer thing and uh and and where people can find that if they want to get get it so i did a little appearance for this uh, for a um a uh, brewery here in California in, in Covina called Alasta Brewing Company. And uh, we went back and forth and they were like, hey, man, you ever thought about doing your own beer? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. I love beer. <laughs> Let's do it. So we went back and forth and, you know, it took about a year to kind of come up with. But we really came up with this, uh, we call it Los Guerreros Mexican Lager. Uh, and it's a craft beer. So a craft beer is something that's not mass produced like an Anheuser-Busch type beer, like a you know Budweiser or sure. McUltra or something like that. But um, so when you make a beer like that big, of course you're going to you know cut costs where you can because you're trying to turn profits. On a craft brew, you know, you're going to use all the greatest ingredients and really – so your price points could be a little bit more than a Corona Light, but a Los Guerreros Mexican Lager – in my opinion, blows them all away. I have taste tested them against any, any everybody and other craft brews, and it's one of the best beers. And that's a reason why I partnered with Alasa Brewing Company because they're award winning. I tasted 
several of their beers and several of their seasonal beers. I'm like, wow, these are great. So when we came up with, with my beer, it, I was just really like, I was so happy with just to taste it, man. Cause you never really know. And when they came up finally with the recipe, guy was so good. And they sprinkled a little bit of uh, Yucatan sea salt in it. So man, this, the beer is, it's excellent. Phenomenal. It's really getting some steam, uh, at the LA County fair, I believe was going to carry it. So, um, it's it's kind of man, it's taken off. And if you're interested in getting it, go to craft uh, craft beer uh, craft craftbeerkings.com. Yeah, yeah, they can they'll um, they can they'll ship it they ship throughout the United States. So it's not just available here in um, California. You can actually get it also shipped to you anywhere you want. Um, so that's kind of where we're at, man. Man, that thing's it's pretty cool, man. You that's know? awesome. I'm not I'm not a beer guy. I'm a vodka guy. I never developed a sure. taste for beer. But somewhere I know Eddie and your dad are smiling, knowing there's a Los Guerreros beer out there with the uh, with the uh, whatever's on there, your family crest or the oh, photos. Or well, you whatever. know my you know my dad's loving it. My dad's loving it. <laughs> and, and Eddie Eddie later on in his life had to basically give up alcohol. Yeah. But uh, when when he back in the day when he did drink, man, he he loved beer, and we all do, you know. I mean, we're Mexican. We, we love we love our we love our brews, you well, know. But uh, yeah, that's really something that's really cool, kind of a dream come true, and and you know, it's really cool to have a beer name after you. Yeah, you've hey, listen. I appreciate the time. You've always been a motivated, smart guy who was willing to take a risk, and it looks like uh, that you've totally recreated yourself in uh, in, in in Hollywood. And and uh, best to you and your family. How old are your kids now? Just out of curiosity. Uh, nineteen. That's crazy. And Sixteen. That's, I know you remember them well before they were born. That, really, yep. My youngest was born in WCW. My yep. oldest was born in WCW. So you remember them yep. then. And uh, my youngest didn't get born until I was I was in WWF at the time. My, <laughs> so, mine are, my, yeah, it's crazy, right? My boys are twenty four and twenty two. Absolutely insane. Wow, we're getting old, man. How are we that? How are we that old? I don't man? Know. <laughs> hey, great talking to you. Uh, drinks on me next time I see you, and um, and I'm out to, off to try the beer. I'm not a beer drinker, but I'll try. I have to try it just because uh, it's sort of what you got to do if you're friends with the Guerrero family, which I got to be a little bit uh, over the years. So. So, uh, hey, best of luck. Um, uh, fans, if you want to try Los Guerreros beer, uh, you, what was it, Craft Beer? CraftBeerKings.com. CraftBeerKings.com. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your honesty, you. uh, honesty and uh, and hope to see you down the road, my friend. Oh, and uh, Glow Season 4 coming out uh, August 9th. So be prepared for it, guys. It's going to be awesome. Want to thank Chavo uh, for sure. Want to, uh, if you could check out his beer. Uh, I just actually looked it up online and saw the can, and it is very cool. It has the Guerrero sort of crest and warrior and Mexican warrior in it, and it's a really cool-looking uh, can of beer. And um, if Brian Nobbs likes it, I'm sure it tastes good as well. So be sure to support that. And I, I want to thank Chavo once again for being open and honest about some topics that are still uncomfortable to talk about and for telling us some great stories the benoit story where he used to go sneak in uh, vince's dressing room after he left and steal the filet mignon is tremendous and if uh i could just see benoit doing that and getting such a kick out of the fact not that he got free food just out of the fact that he got well, got in there and snuck in there and was able to bring a bunch of full expensive filet mignons out just it wasn't so much the 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 what happened after the rib or the, the experience it, for Chris was all about pulling it off uh, as we talked about. So uh, 
Thank you, Chavo. Uh, and um, uh, great stuff. And uh, we will be back next week. This one's going to be hard to top, but we will try our best with another great edition of City Ringside. So until next week, I'm David Penzer, still City Ringside. Thank you for listening. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Life in the Fast Lane with Black Moses. Alan Lane Quick Fix on Radio Influence. You may have seen my guest for this week's episode hosting the show All Girls Garage or hosting the Barrett Jackson Live Auto Auction. You may have seen her reporting live from the X Games or Supercross or a number of road racing programs on TV. Later this year, you can catch her on the Motor Trend channel as a member of the cast of Garage Squad. Please welcome to Life in the Fast Lane, Christy Lee. All Girls Garage has been like, it's been an awesome show. Like we do some really, we do some really great projects and, you know, I definitely feel right at home. I mean, it's a set, it's not a functioning garage. So it's not like a lot of reality TV shows where you just kind of tune in and it's someone's shop and they just happen to have cameras rolling. Um, You know, it's a how-to show. So we're kind of trying to show just some different projects, uh, maybe give you a few tips and tricks along the way and show you a variety of different projects too. So it's been not only a fun ride for me because I feel so home in the garage or so at home in the garage, but you know, it's also been a great learning experience for me, uh, on the show. I mean, I never had worked on a 67 Shelby GT 500 before <laughs> I was on that show. No, of course not. Like my dad was a mechanic. My mom was a teacher. Like we didn't have cars like that when I was growing up. So, <laughs> you know, like I've gotten to do some really cool projects because of that show. Like I've gotten my hands in things that I probably never would have. Life in the Fast Lane with Black Moses, Alan Lane can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.